Welcome to Alchemy Radio, the home of the open mind. Thank you for tuning in and hopefully you enjoy the show if you're a regular listener. If it's your first time tuning in, well, hopefully you'll enjoy this show and check out our back catalogue of episodes, which you'll find on our website, alchemyradio.net and on iTunes as well. We rely on donations to keep the show in its current free and advertising free format and indeed are in the process of increasing our output to eventually over the next couple of months air weekly. So it's all very exciting at the moment. We put no fixed cost on donations and every little helps, so if you could spare even the price of a cup of coffee or a sandwich or even a small car, that would be great every month and would certainly go a long way towards keeping us afloat. Our donate button is on the website and your support and assistance is hugely appreciated. Check out our Twitter account as well, twitter.com forward slash alchemy radio. Get following and interacting with us with all your feedback, guest suggestions and other input as well. You'll also find us on Facebook. So on to the show. Our guest this week is John Rappaport. John has worked as a freelance investigative reporter for over 30 years. He has written articles on politics, health, media, culture and art for LA Weekly, Spin Magazine, Stern, Village Voice, Nexus, CBS Health Watch and other newspapers and magazines in the US and Europe. In 1982, the LA Weekly submitted his name for a Pulitzer Prize for his interview with the president of El Salvador University, where the military had taken over the campus. John has hosted, produced and written radio programs and segments in L.A. and Las Vegas. He has appeared as a guest on over 200 radio and television programs, including ABC's Nightline, Tony Brown's Journal and Hard Copy. In 1994, John ran for a seat in the U.S. Congress from the 29th District in Los Angeles. After six months of campaigning on a very small budget, he garnered 20% of the vote, running against an incumbent who had occupied his seat for 20 years. In 1996, John started the great boycott against eight corporate chemical giants, Monsanto, Dow, DuPont, Bayer, Imperial Chemical Industries and more. And the boycott continues to operate to this day. John has lectured extensively all over the US on the question, who runs the world and what can we do about it? And for the last 10 years has operated largely away from the mainstream because, as he puts it, my research was not friendly to the conventional media. Over the last 30 years, John's independent research has encompassed such areas as deep politics, conspiracies, alternative health, the potential of the human imagination, mind control, the medical cartel, symbology and solutions to the takeover of the planet by hidden elites. A painter, John's work has been shown in galleries in Los Angeles and New York and his poetry has been published by the Massachusetts Review. So, John, you're very welcome to Alchemy Radio. How are things? Uh, Very good over here. Fantastic. Long way away from you. I'm in San Diego, California. A very nice place to be. And I know many Irish listeners are extremely familiar. I think there's, there's kind of an influx of young Irish people every summer to San Diego. So a lot of people will know exactly where you are. Oh, good. Okay. So basically, for those who aren't familiar with your work, John, let's go back in time a little bit and tell us a, a little bit about how you got from where you were initially to where you are now, because you have a long and distinguished and... Um, a varied career, I suppose, if career is the right word to use. Yes, I think it is. Uh, let's see. 1982, I was writing fiction and poetry, and a friend of mine in Los Angeles, where I was living at the time, was working 
as a copy editor at a newspaper called LA Weekly, which was just beginning to attract a lot of attention. And she said she thought they were looking for articles. And at the time, there was a big movement in America and uh, I think also Europe was called the nuclear freeze, mm. which was the idea of stopping the production of nuclear weapons. And I said, well, I know a guy who's very active. He's a leader in that movement. I'm sure I could interview him. And so I did, and I wrote it up, and I submitted it. And they said, great. And they published it as a cover story, and they sent me a check. And I thought, well, that was pretty easy. Let's try it again. Okay. And so that's how it all began. I was writing for LA Weekly on a number of topics, and then that expanded, and I began publishing articles in other newspapers and magazines in the U.S. and Europe on politics, medicine, uh, a little bit on medical fraud, and eventually the whole thing got to be rather oppressive because I wanted to explore some bigger questions, who's running things, who's running the world, what's really going on, mm. how deep is uh, the rabbit hole, and so forth. And I found that uh, the stories I was pitching to these editors uh, were not getting through. They were not interested, made them a little nervous, and so I somewhere around 1987, I guess, I decided, well, this isn't for me. This was before, you know, the internet was taking off. Mm. And uh, so I met a hypnotherapist in Santa Monica, California, Jack True, who was a friend of a small book publisher. And he wanted a book on the subject of AIDS. And I said, well, you know, I've done a little investigation into that. And from what I could see, there's a lot of medical fraud going on at the research level. And I don't know where it would take me exactly, but if you'll give me free reign uh, and we can make a decent deal, I'll write a book for you. And he said, done, let's do it. And so that really began my career as a journalist because all bets were off. I was interviewing, I don't know how many people who were coming at me from various angles about HIV, about bioweapons, about all sorts of stuff. And I had to sort it all out. And I had pieces of paper taped up on my walls. The whole place looked like it was just a paper factory with notes and different uh, possible conclusions about what was really going on with this thing called AIDS. Mm. And eventually that turned into my first book, AIDS, Inc., Scandal of the Century, published in 1988, where I concluded that there was absolutely no evidence that HIV caused AIDS, that the whole thing was an incredible scientific hoax. And in the process of doing the book, I had researched and gone down so many different roads, so many different alleys, that I learned a tremendous amount about vaccines. I learned about uh, conventional medical research uh, 
in the sense of how they decide what a new disease is and what causes it. I learned about immune system suppression. I learned about what was really going on in the third world, intentional operations to try to destroy populations, destroy their immune systems, and uh, it just went on and on and on. And so I just basically piled everything into that first book. And after that, I realized that the medical cartel, as I call it, was an extremely powerful force in the world and uh, extremely destructive all in all, Mm -hmm. and that they needed exposure. And so I began writing lots of articles about that. And then things just branched out. I began doing lectures. And in those days, there was an outfit that used to come around uh, wherever I lectured, and they would record uh, the talks on audio cassette and make copies and sell them to people right there. And these cassettes eventually got all over the world. And then when I became really aware of the Internet uh, in 2000, 2001, and somebody took me aside and said, this is it, (laughs) this is what you've been looking for, I know you use a typewriter, but sit down and I'll show you what's going on here. That's when I started No More Fake News, my site, and realized that uh, for somebody like me, it was a miracle. Because people have to understand, in the old days, you'd pitch a story to an editor of a newspaper or a magazine, and they might get back to you in a week or two weeks, yes or no, Mm. and then you'd write the piece another few weeks, and then you'd submit it another month, and then they publish it, maybe, you know, this, I write a piece, three seconds later, it's up there on the web. Unbelievable. So, everything's changed since then. And changed in a massive way. And I, I think that's that's a, a very good point that you've highlighted with regard to the internet because so many, particularly younger listeners, will be thinking, well, of course, the internet is easy. But uh, th- I don't think many people grasp just how difficult, and you've just described it, it would have been to get yourself published. And when you released AIDS Inc. in 1988, it create, created quite a bit, of, a bit of a stir because there really hadn't been anyone who had come out and said some of the things that you had said. And for those who may have touched on it, there was nobody who had researched it to the extent or in the depth that you had. And your conclusions were shocking to a huge number of people and are still shocking, I would imagine, to a lot of people probably listening here today. So before we proceed, because we did touch on it earlier, you did, you did mention your conclusions, let's very briefly talk about what was contained in that book. We won't give too much away because I know a lot of people will be interested in, in reading the book and we'll point them on the website to how they can do exactly that. But, but what was kind of the, the rough gist of your findings there, John? Uh, The research that decided that AIDS was one condition, one uh, disease or syndrome, the same all over the world, was completely false. It's not one thing. The idea that one particular virus, in this case HIV, was causing all this devastation was totally false. And it was a hoax, a scientific hoax that had been pushed on the government, on the public, on the media, a very compliant media, by Robert Gallo, 
the main American scientist who is called the co-discoverer of the HIV virus by Luc Montagnier, another hoaxer uh, from Paris, the Pasteur Institute, who has since backtracked on many of his own statements that it was absolute fraud, that there was no evidence whatsoever of any compelling kind that this thing they were calling HIV was doing anything to people at all. And the third major conclusion that I reached was that the medicines that they were giving people to, quote, combat HIV, etc., etc., were toxic killers of the very worst kind and were, in fact, killing people. Um, the main drug at that time was AZT. Were killing people in untold numbers because it prevents cells of the body from replicating. It is a failed form of chemotherapy. Right. And it was being given to people for the rest of their lives at high doses and it was just killing them and destroying them and I heard many stories to that effect and if you research the literature you can see that this is actually a fact. So those were the three main conclusions that I reached and then equally important coming down from that was I said to myself okay so if AIDS what they're calling AIDS is not one thing what is it? And the conclusion that I demonstrated and came to was it is basically a label for immune system suppression. Mm. In other words, if you debilitate or destroy a person's immune system, then they are going to die from any number of possible causes because they can't fight off germs. They can't fight off anything. But the actual causes of the immune suppression in different groups around the world depend on where they live, what's going on there. Like, you know, go to certain places in Africa, you're talking about generation to generation hunger, starvation, protein, calorie, malnutrition, contaminated water supplies, lack of basic sanitation, overcrowding, <clears throat> stolen agricultural land from the people by major corporations, and the relentless effort to continue this program of human destruction and not remedy it when it can be remedied, and then on top of that to introduce highly toxic medical drugs and vaccines to those populations, which absolutely devastate them to an even greater degree. And then I began to see the game, the game of disease invention as a cover story, as a cover-up for what's really killing people that the elites of this world don't want to remedy. They want to continue killing people, and then they find in the medical cartel an ideal home for cover stories that seem to present the idea of these diseases and pandemics coming out of nowhere when all of these are frauds, complete frauds. They're not the cause. And, and I'll wrap it up with this. From there, eventually, what I got to was 
that a great deal of time and effort and energy and money is spent inside the medical cartel inventing fake diseases and fake mental disorders and making billions and even trillions of profit on treating them with drugs and vaccines, but also in the process maiming and debilitating and killing gigantic numbers of people. And then in the year 2000, 2001, I became aware of a a medical journal paper, conventional, down the line, everybody's credentials were completely mainstream, Journal of the American Medical Association, July 26, 2000, titled, Is U.S. Health Really the Best in the World? by Dr. Barbara Starfield, who was working at the Johns Hopkins School of Public Health, revered institution, et cetera, et cetera. And she concluded, and this is a conservative estimate, which she has told me in an interview, uh, is conservative, and other studies now show even greater destruction. Her paper showed that the U.S. medical system kills, like clockwork, 225,000 people a year. That's 2.25 million people per decade. And so since then, by no means all of my research, but a significant amount of it has gone into exposing the crimes of the medical cartel. And these crimes seem to be layered upon layered upon layered. And a lot of the work you've done as well speaks of the Matrix. And on this show, many people have spoken about the Matrix, and it means different things to a lot of different people. So let's talk about your interpretation of the Matrix, because that will bring us on then, I think, John, to, uh, to manufacturing reality, which is what you are concerned with looking at and have been for so long. And for, for those who mightn't be familiar with your work at this point, um, bar what you've just spoken about, Essentially, what you have been speaking about for the last 10 minutes is the manufacturing of reality. For example, if somebody's reality is sickness and they're told that they have HIV or AIDS or whatever it is and it's going to kill them, that becomes their reality. If it's, um, if it's a fallacy, well, then that reality has been manufactured for them. And I think that essentially is a, is a key point to a lot of the work you're doing. So let's talk about the matrix and the manufacturing of reality and and. How quick was the unfolding of the veil or the lifting of the veil for you? Because you went very deep down the medical rabbit hole, but it just opened door after door after door, and your work has demonstrated that. Yes. I think it was a period of maybe five or six years when everything swam into view for me, and I made many, many connections, connecting the dots, and began to see the whole picture of Matrix. It is a kind of embrace between the subconscious of people and externally the manufacturing of reality. In other words, if people were not prone to accepting the reality manufacturing company's products in the first place, we would be living in a vastly different world. So it's not just the external factors of manufacturing reality. It's also what is happening at the subconscious level that has to do with a sort of invisible 
programming and trance that exists at the core of consciousness of people. People who otherwise appear to be very active. It's not as if they're walking around like zombies, although some of them are. But by and large, what I'm talking about is something going on very deeply in the subconscious. And that programming is not by any means entirely uh, imported from the outside. It's self-induced to a great degree. And so when I began to see all of these uh, things clicking into place, and especially through my association with my late friend and colleague, Jack True, who was, to my way of thinking, the most brilliant hypnotherapist on the planet, Mm -hmm. and his experiments and his work with patients, I began to see how on an internal level this actually works and how it can be uh, changed, how people can discover what is going on at a very deep subconscious level and embark on what amounts to a personal revolution of transformation. So it's not just internal transformation and it's not just external elites, it's the connections between the two. It's lock and key. They work together. They have operated together on this planet since the dawn of time. This is not just a modern operation. This is not just the CIA. This is not just, uh, you know, elite bankers. This is not just the Council on Foreign Relations or Skull and Bones or secret societies now. Mm. This is something that has been going on ever since societies began to form, you know, groups, societies, nations, tribes, clans on this planet. It is a pattern that has been repeated over and over again, and it extends to what most people would call extremely far-out paranormal factors. And I will kind of try to put that in a nutshell by saying that the space-time continuum itself is a manufactured reality, ultimately. That what we live in is itself a kind of simulation. And people can become, to one degree or another, aware of this and do something about it. So... Those are some of the things that happened to me during this period from, let's say, 2001 to 2006 or 7, where all of these factors began to come together. So just to get back to the space-time continuum there, because, again, that's that's a, a huge statement. Is it the case, John, or is your interpretation of it that... We are, in in essence, decoding machines. Our consciousness gives us the ability to decode information, our energy, our vibrational forces into what we perceive as being our reality. That's a very good way to put it. It is a decoding mechanism. And that should be apparent to anyone who cares to think about it. Uh, just a quick bit of background. Mm-hmm. Toward the end of the 19th century, Western philosophy 
the history of Western philosophy, began to bump up against a very uh, tough fact. People perceive reality. Up until that point throughout the history of Western philosophy, for the most part, philosophers were trying to explain reality to people. This is what reality ultimately ultimately is. This is reality with a big R. But at the end of the 19th century, all of a sudden it became apparent to many philosophers that this was all relative to how people perceive reality. And how do they perceive reality? What's going on there? And so, to take it back to my first comment here, after your question, if you look at the way the five senses perceive reality. You are looking at extremely complex decoding operations that allow people to perceive. You know, mm. smell, touch, taste, see, hear, etc., etc. And these senses or sensory apparatuses extend into further realms, but they're all about decoding information so that when we walk out the door onto the street, you know, you and I, I can say, uh, look at that building over there, and you say, yeah. <laughs> you know, you don't say, no, that's a cow, you know. Yeah. We are in consensus about reality, and that doubly enforces our identical perception mechanisms are decoding actions and that is indeed what is going on and i think then by extension john certainly my reading of it would be that the beauty of that type of situation is once we are open to to the information and to exploring it further if we can open our own consciousness to what's beyond the five senses well then suddenly we've got a great deal of power and control that heretofore we didn't realize we had yeah, that's, that's the next step. That's the major step, you see. And so, because I started out as a writer when I was 17, writing fiction and poetry, and because at age uh, 23, 24, I started painting and have been painting and writing both journalism and fiction and poetry, you know, for the last uh, whatever that is, uh, you know, 50 years or so mm -hmm. what I came upon and this was confirmed in my collaborative research with Jack True imagination is the key imagination is the forgotten power imagination is that thing which we are told is a toy merely for children and when we become adults we set it aside so that we can uh, fit into the world imagination is forever imagination is limitless power to create reality imagination is non-material it has nothing to do with the brain. Its source is not in energy or matter or this continuum. Imagination for every individual is an infinite potential, an infinite capacity to create reality 
as fact in the world, not merely as some sort of rumination inside one's own head. Knowing that from my own experience and from my research with Jack True, I then, to add to your comment, in a sense, found the missing key that when one begins to live a life of intense creativity by and through imagination, eventually one comes to the point where this he or she is manifesting this power to such a degree that so-called paranormal experiences begin to become the order of the day. And manufactured reality takes a back seat. And then we see what is really our legacy, our heritage, our natural state, our power. Nothing woo-woo or weird about it. It's only weird from a conventional android point of view. Mm -hmm. And face it, we live in an android civilization. Earth civilization is androidal. It is all about organization. Organization was the greatest development of the 20th century, by which I mean mega organization. Mm. The ability to corral and direct enormous numbers of people in an organized fashion toward achieving certain objectives. Fine, fantastic, okay. But the propensity and the leaning is toward the androidal, which means we're gonna organize this sucker to such a degree that people will be cubicled in space and time and consciousness for the rest of their lives. Everything will be specialized. You carry out orders, you carry out commands, you execute projects, you uh, immerse yourself in systems and structures that are designed to keep you bounded and uh, passive and you move along toward the grave. That is the pattern, that is the overriding thought form, you might say, that has been impressed upon the consciousness of billions of people as to what this planet and what this civilization are all about, and that's where it's going, and that's where it keeps going. And counterpoised to that is this fantastic individual creative power and imagination of the individual to create reality. That's what we're really dealing with, and that's a sort of an insight into what I'm talking about when I talk about Matrix. And I think it's fascinating that you speak about imagination in such a sense and bring it right back to childhood, because I think if anybody observes a child and how they use their imagination, and how when they're given space to play, that that becomes their reality. So, for, for example, an adult might look at a child with their imaginary friend and say, well, yeah, that child is going to grow out of it. Um, to that child, the imaginary friend is, while, while it may be a creation of the imagination, is very real because that's their perception, that's their creation. And it's, it's fascinating then to watch the schooling system as we go through it and as everybody goes through it and how it, it manages to, well, steadfastly shit on from a height 
any kind of creativity or imagination and stimmy that process. I remember, and I've spoken about it many times on this show, my, my own uh, so-called education, but my time in school. And the number of times I was at loggerheads with teachers or authority for daring to think outside the box or for doing something that would be a little bit unconventional because it didn't fit into the pattern that I can now see was designed by somebody somewhere to stimmy imagination. And I don't necessarily lay blame at the feet of my teachers, but they were willingly part of a system that is complicit in that. And I think it's, it's a huge crime against the humanity that we could be versus the humanity that we are, that this is allowed to go on. And it's so refreshing to hear somebody speak at such, such length and in such depth and so eloquently about the issue of imagination versus, I suppose, collectivism or the organization of the masses. You mentioned the 20th century and how it, it all really kicked off then. Let's talk about that for a little while, because I think collectivism, which I know is a subject close to your heart, is something that really feeds this replacement of imagination that exists at the moment. You bet. You bet. In spades. Collectivism <clears throat> has as its goal the eradication of the individual and of the idea that there even is such a thing as an individual, as preposterous as that might seem. And in an article, I, I don't know, eight months ago or so, I quoted a sociology professor at a university, I think it was here in California, <clears throat> who basically said straight out, you know, wrote that the idea of the distinct individual is defunct. It's done. It's gone. It was just a kind of a construct, you see, in his uh, way of approaching it that that we used in the past and it was useful to a degree for a time to liberate us here and there from this and that but now now in the greater light of awareness we could all see that this is just simply a dead end that what now has to take place is we have to concern ourselves with what the group wants what the group needs what the group demands and nothing else and we have to toe the line for that. And that is collectivism. That is the engine of collectivism, which uh, results in everything that we see about oppression in this world. It is the formula for slavery. And it is uh, affected, brought into being through numerous strategies very very sophisticated in in many cases strategies uh, part of my collection called the matrix revealed is a number of interviews that i did with a retired propaganda master who go, went under the pseudonym of ellis metavoy who described to me in great detail exactly how he operated and with what knowledge of uh aspects of human consciousness so that he could tap directly into this tendency to be collectivist, to yearn for collective solutions, to accept passively in a kind of trance state on a subconscious level answers, information, solutions that when you strip away the inessentials really add up to uh, 
we're collectivists, all of us. We're collectivists. You're a collectivist. I'm a collectivist. We're all collectivists. And here we are. We're sitting around and we're all collectivists. And I want to think what you want to think. And you want to think what he wants to think. And she wants to think what, you know. And we're all passing this potato around, Mm. which is, I want to think what you want to think. So that eventually nobody thinks anything, (laughs) you know, really. I mean, it's just, it's just empty space. It's all bullshit to the height of how high you can possibly pile it of nothingness because it's only meaning is really that we all agree. We all agree on what we perceive. We all agree that this is reality. We all agree on this issue, that issue, whatever it is. It's not so much what we agree on. It's the fact that we all consent to the same thing. We all are agree we are all collectivists we all are our first and foremost and primary consideration is the group 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 and that will destroy humanity well what do you say john to the person who says well collectivism is very important because we need a consensus on issues we can't have a civilized society and we can't have a functioning government and uh for example, the, everything will turn to chaos and anarchy if we don't have collectivism and a, a lowest common denominator. What would you say to that kind of a viewpoint? I'd say, look what lowest common denominator has brought us. Look what it has wrought. Look what it has brought into being. Look at the status and the situation of the planet as it is now. And really understand to what degree collectivism has brought all this about. Collectivists are always saying, yeah, well, it, it hasn't really succeeded so far, you know, to any great degree, but, but just wait, because around the corner, we're going to get something better, and we're going to get utopia, we're going to get a better society, we're going to get a, a wonderful world, and so on and so forth. Mm. And that's what's really going on. The promise of things unseen that will never be brought into being. That's the, the uh, MO, that's the modus operandi of collectivists. Yes, of course, if you and I and somebody else decide to start a business and we can't agree on anything, nothing is going to happen. But what people fail to understand is there's a difference between one type of group and another. In one type of group, which is, you know, by far overwhelmingly the predominant kind of group on earth, you have people who are submerging their individual power to the so-called needs of the group. In other words, self-destruction completely. But yes, there is another kind of group which is a small number of people, each of whom is a very, very much a distinct individual who decide to band together for a particular reason which is consciously explored and understood by all and agreed to voluntarily. And then you have, man, then you've really got something. Then you have a creative force that is extremely powerful in the world. Those are two completely opposite things. 
And it's very interesting then when you look at some of what's going on around the world. For, for example, let's take popular culture, um, the entertainment industry, music and Hollywood and movies, that kind of thing. Because most of us uh, would, would assume automatically that the music industry or Hollywood are about creativity. They're about imagination. They're about storytelling, etc., etc. However, there's been a huge hijacking there. And that's particularly evident over the last five to ten years in Hollywood and in the music industry, whereby big business and um, I suppose corporate collectivism has totally overtaken the power of imagination and replaced it with something far more nefarious. Is that a trend that you have seen and observed closely, John? Would you agree with that contention? Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, On a personal level, for many years, I have known many, many musicians. And I can tell you that to a person, these musicians have sacrificed and compromised their own imagination to the requirements of the corporate enterprise in which they exist. And if that sounds like a sort of a so what, truism, whatever, the opposite side of that coin is, were all of those musicians to free themselves from this shackle and chain, the music that they would have produced would have been killer killer liberating because they would have been singing playing speaking in their own voice their own true voice they would have been inventing reality by the ton and people would have been awakened by this because it's very contagious when somebody comes down the pipeline and says this is what i am this is what i create and no one is going to stop me and no one is going to tell me that I have to submerge all this and, you know, diddle myself with some absurd kind of lowest common denominator of crap for the masses. I don't do that. Never would, never have, never will, no matter what. Here's what I do. Now listen to it. We would be living in a different world right now. I can guarantee that. Ditto for the music business. There are people in the music, I mean, in the uh, movie business, there are people in that business who, if unleashed, and I've talked to a few of them, and I've said to them, you know, we're not making a transaction here. We're just sitting here having a conversation. Mm. I don't have a, uh, you know, a dog in this hunt so I'm not trying for anything self-serving here but let me just tell you I've seen some of your work I know you're not doing what you want to do I, I just imagine what you would do if you were unleashed not with the same budgets but to make the movies you really want to make in the way you want to make them mm. Think how you'd feel when you woke up every morning. Think what energy you'd have. Think what, you know, so-called problems that you now embroil yourself with would just disappear overnight because you're so motivated, so wired with the future and what you're going to do that you would be a different person, which is to say yourself. 
you, the individual, the unique individual with unique creative talents and infinite imagination. And, you know, in the process of the conversation, I can see the lights go on. I can see them thinking, you know, because I'm pretty tough on them. I mean, I just say, look, you know, don't give me any shit. I know. You know, you don't have to give me the PR front here, okay? We're just two people having a conversation. So forget about all that nonsense. And you see people wake up. You see them shake off ghosts and zombies and, you know, subconscious programming for a minute there. You know, the light goes on and they think, what have I been doing? What You know, this is what's happening in... You know, the, the mass commercialization, ultimately, the operation called the entertainment industry is all about putting people, especially young people, into dead ends, alleys that you walk down at midnight where you get to a blank wall and that's it, baby. There's no place left to go mm. with a certain sequences of emotions and energies and ideas and words and, and images and so forth that ultimately lead you to complete disillusionment, A, and B, a passivity about it all, or some kind of uh, hectic chaos where, in which you can't even think straight anymore. That's the operation. That's the purpose of the entertainment business as it exists now is to put people into that place. And, of course, it's very seductive because it's all about aesthetics and art. And, and you know, you get roped in. Oh, look at this. Wow. And you see one movie after another. You listen to one tune after another. And a few years later, you say, Geez, I mean, what's happened to me? Where am I here? How did this happen? Why am I standing in this alley at midnight looking at this fucking blank wall? How did that happen? Why is my life a shambles? Because you've been seduced step by step down that programmed road of controlled creation, manufactured reality that leads you to despair. That's it. That's the game they're playing. Whereas the real artist explodes that completely. Mm. It's almost like um, that, that power of explosion is the antithesis of, how would I describe it, a programmed anti-self or the opposite of what we should be. When, because we are, I mean, as humans, and I don't care who's listening and who they are and what it is they do in their lives, they are creative beings. They're here to create and to imagine creation. And that's what we're all here to do, in my opinion. And I think we all have that power in us. But we get caught up in some of the mundanity of everyday life but as as somebody who is um an artist in the music industry myself i've seen it firsthand how my own creativity has been stimmied by the requirements of the game or the industry and to to get ahead in that industry you have to compromise your creativity and various other things at various points as well and there does come a time where one has to question oneself and say hang on a minute is this really what I want to do? Is this, is this satisfying me? While something might be satisfying my financial needs, is that actually the right thing for me? Is that doing anything for me inside? And every single time, John, that I've asked myself that question, I've realized, no, it's not. And when I look back at times, and luckily enough, I'm at a time now where, where I am being creative and doing things on my terms. 
Um, and while it might mean financial sacrifices, yes, I, I can relate to a time very early in my life and some early memories that I had wh- where I had the power to create without intervention and without worrying about what other people thought about my creations. And, and those were the most fruitful times, not just in terms of, I suppose, on a soulful or spiritual level, but in terms of actual things happening around me and people responding to what it was I was doing. I think real creativity always shines through. And I've had to learn some very hard lessons myself along the way with regard to that. Do you think it's something that can happen en masse in the coming years? I mean, I don't know whether I'm speaking short-term or long-term here, but do you think that power can be remembered by people and that explosion you speak of can take place on the level of humanity as opposed to just within the individual? I do. Uh, But I take the very long term here. Okay. Because, you know, five years from now, ten years from now, I'm not looking at that short term in, in, in answer to your question, what I'm looking at is, you know, the future, the long term. I, I firmly believe not only that it can happen, but that at some point it will happen. And there are certain things that are indestructible. I don't care what you do to them. And I'm not saying this as an invitation to people to just wait around for something to fall out of the sky because that's not how it happens. A painter goes into the studio and and sets up a blank canvas on an easel. He doesn't just sit there and wait for something to happen. You have to do it. You have to invent it and create it and change it and, you know, all of that. But I, I absolutely definitely do. I believe that it will happen. But how long into the future it's going to take, uh, I don't know, but it's a long future. (laughs) No matter what happens, no matter how much chaos ensues now, no matter how bad things get, in what direction, and so on and so forth. But people, it happens by people uh, doing something. I mean, you shake it off. You say, wait a minute. My bank account is getting bigger, but I'm getting sicker. Does that really make sense as a formula for life? So that eventually what's going to happen here is my bank account will be even bigger, but I'll be dying. Is that what I'm here about? Is that, is that, is that the goal? <laughs> is that why I came here to earth to do that number? Yeah, that was quite a life. Yeah, I got richer. I didn't do what I wanted to do and I died. great that's the epitaph no the world is shaped by people who do exactly what they want to do who create exactly what they want to create and since we're dealing with elites who are trying to create exactly a super controlled collectivist planet as their end game then what we as individuals have to do is to create and imagine exactly what we want to create as individuals and to do it to the hilt. To the hilt. Not halfway, not a little bit, but all the way. All the way. And I could recount many examples throughout history, and people know some of these too, where we see these individuals who did exactly that, and they played a tremendous role in shaping what came after. 
because it wasn't just, oh, well, they were just enormously talented. And so they couldn't have done anything else. They, they had to be this sort of an inventor or that sort of artist or you know, architect. Or, no, absolutely not. Absolutely not. It's not just as the day follows the night, it all just kind of unrolls like a carpet. No, there's tremendous work involved. There's tremendous energy involved. But when you're on that track, the inspiration is enormous. And the energy comes from very deep caverns, resources within you that are untapped otherwise. They just sit there and eat potato chips on the couch mm. until they get the call. Hey, wait a minute. Did you hear that? Our guy is going to do exactly what he wants to do. Imagine it to the hilt. Create reality without compromise from now till the end of the end of the end and beyond. Is that what? Wow. Did you hear that? Yeah. Well, let's get off the couch, baby, because we got to, you know, we're in business now. Finally, you know, after 5,000 years, this guy is finally awakened. And now we can put ourselves right into that whole operation because that's what we're here for. Otherwise, we do nothing. And I've seen this happen time and time again. And on a personal level, enormously, where when I say, oh, this is what I'm going to do now. Oh, yeah, this is what I'm <laughs> the energy is bang there and when I don't it's a snooze fest I can relate to that a lot John but there's 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 something that gets in the way for a lot of people and this might sound a little bit ridiculous to the casual listener at first but it's it's family and the reliance on family because I know some of the biggest battles or struggles I've had myself when it's come when, when it has come to kind of attempting to break free of the the corporate collectivism that exists around me or did exist around me in my life, quite often that was in complete opposition to what was going on in my family. And family members can, uh, I suppose they're the most vocal people around us. And we're very, very reliant on family and family ties. You've spoken about this extensively. Do you see it as a a negative thing or a positive thing, the the reliance on family? I suppose the reliance in itself on anything is never a good thing, but, but family in general and the family structure that is socially accepted at the moment and has sprung out. Is, is it positive or negative? Is it conducive to the explosion of imagination that we're talking about? Family, just in that pure sense of the word, is good. The structure of family as it now exists, or to be more clear about it, as it is now promoted mm. as an item everywhere, it's all about family. When you're at the very end, all you got left is family, a family, this, that, crime family, this family, you know. The way it's promoted is extremely negative because what it implies is that the individual bends to the collective will of the family, which is always on the side of caution, being extremely uh, tight, asked about what one should do and shouldn't do in life. No, don't strike out on your own. No, that could be dangerous. No, what what do you what will people think of you? You'll reflect badly on us, your family, if you go off and do this crazy thing. You know, it's all about that. 
And so it's an operation to hold people in thrall, to hold them in check, to keep them from their own imaginations and boundless creative power. So I know we only have a couple of minutes left. I could talk a lot about this and how family has been promoted. <clears throat> I did a little research not very long ago um, to see how often certain words were used on television. And in the only survey I, survey I could find, family was one of those words that ranked, I think it was like, I don't know, 236 out of 29 million. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> so they pound it, they pound it, and they pound it. And they're not talking about the pure essence of support of family and love and, you know, all the good things that go with family. Mm. What they're talking about is uh, this destructive collectivist fiction that people are supposed to model themselves after. And that's intentional. That's an effort to keep people uh, in chains. So may maybe an example of that for people would be whereby it's quite often assumed within the family structure that the son or the daughter will emulate the career path of a particular parent and that that's continued down throughout the generations despite the fact that quite often the, uh, the, the son or daughter mightn't want to do that and it completely flies in the face of their own, I suppose, their own, their own imagination and what it is they want to create. Mm -hmm. You bet. In that case, it's just the father wanting to see a reflection of himself. My son is me. Mm. <laughs> you know, yeah. he's doing what I did. All right, that's what we do. You know, it's the collective. It's the collective from my great, 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 great grandfather all the way down to my son and his sons. And, you know, it's that kind of historical collective in that sense. The pure insanity. I want to see a reflection of myself. Why? Is yourself not enough for yourself? You got to have another one? You can't eat one steak. You have to eat seven. No, it's, it's pure madness. So I suppose to conclude, John, I just want to mention an article that you wrote last year uh, towards, towards the tail end of last year, The Artist Against the System Down Through Time, which we'll have the link up on the website too. I think it very neatly ties in a lot of what we were speaking about, about railing against the system, opposing the most popular trends of the moment and, and being yourself. Have you any kind of a, a message for people who might be listening to this and a lot of this knowledge is new to them for example for the first time they're hearing this kind of uh, this kind of perspective and they're thinking do you know what that resonates with me in some way that that's something i can certainly relate to in my life but i just don't know how to begin what's the first step or what do you think the first step would be for anybody john who wants to finally go down their own path well they have to see what that for themselves what that path might be you know there's a lot of reflection there you can write about it keep a you know a notebook where you write you know what's the path what's my path what what do i want what is it that, that that a person really truly wants you know start there and begin to flesh it out and realize that eventually somewhere down the line when you make a choice this is it for me that you then have to express that you have to find a, a, what artists would call a medium through which you can express it and make it a fact in the world not just in your head but you know what it is that you truly want is where you start and if you don't find an immediate answer you know, like a headache pill that's going to cure a headache, that's not a cause for concern. 
this is an exploration. You're an explorer and you're embarked on discovering and finding out and deciding what it is that you truly want. And when you see that and it, all the lights go on and the bells ring and the energy pours in and you say, oh, my God, what a life that would be. Ho, 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 ho. All right. Now, how are you going to do it? And then you begin to do it. You begin to create it. You find the medium through which you can make that happen. And you put everything you've got into it. And if it's big enough and if it's steep enough, and, uh, you know, it's not just a little sort of where you're fooling yourself. If it's real for you, along the line of manifesting it in the world and making it happen, answers to so many questions that have eluded you over the years are going to naturally pop up and you're going to become much wiser and smarter and uh, more perceptive than you you ever dreamed you could be. I think wise is a very fitting word to leave the conversation on because it's wise information, it's wise knowledge, it's the knowledge of power. And on that note, I have the power, you have the power, we have the power. John Rappaport, it's been an absolute pleasure to speak to you at length and I sincerely hope we can do this again sometime in the not-too-distant future. Thank you for joining me today on Alchemy Radio. Thank you, John. Alchemy Radio.
I hope you've enjoyed this week's episode of Alchemy Radio. Remember, we rely on donations to keep the show in its current free and advertising-free format and are extremely grateful for any help you can offer. There's no fixed cost on donations and every little helps and will certainly go a long way towards keeping us afloat. So thank you everybody who's donated over the last couple of weeks. It's very, very much appreciated. Our next guest is Dave Asprey discussing biohacking and the bulletproof diet. And a very interesting conversation awaits us, no doubt. Until then, I have the power, you have the power, we have the power. Alchemy Radio. Alchemy Radio. Analyze. Alchemy Radio. Conceive. Alchemy Radio. Believe. Are you tuned in? Are you tuned in? Are you tuned in? Are you tuned in? Are you tuned in?